Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And you know how much we love talking about things like queens and writers and the mysteries of history, but you can't have history without some battles. We were saying in our own history classes, it's funny, but uh, the curriculum didn't strongly emphasize battles. I even took a class on the Revolutionary War, and it was much more focused on the events leading up to the war than the actual battles. I have one exception, but that's because I grew up for a time in Manassas, Virginia, and I feel like all we ever talked about were the battles of Manassas. But this battle was one we hadn't even heard of until we'd started researching, and that is the battle between King Porus and Alexander the Great. The Battle of the Hydaspes. So who is King Porus? You might not have heard of him. He's also known as Raja Parava, but we're going to go with the Greek names throughout this podcast because most of the information we have about this battle was written by a Greek historian named Arian. So King Porus was a great ruler in the Punjab region, specifically the region between the Hydaspes, which today is Jhelum, and the Assassinis, today Chenab, rivers. And the capital may have been Lahore, which today is in Pakistan. So King Porus fought Alexander the Great in the Battle of the Hydaspes, which was the fourth and last battle fought by Alexander during his campaign of Asian conquest. And Porus is outmatched in this battle by Alexander's cavalry, archers, and maneuvering. But his skill and bravery so impress Alexander that even though he loses the battle, the final outcome is a little bit more unexpected. And it's also a turning point for Alexander. This battle is after his conquest of the Persian Empire and before the army starts heading home for Macedonia. So it's the end of that onward press to reach the ends of the world in the outer sea. And it's a real um, final point for Alexander. Because Alexander has been on a conquest roll for a while now. He's torn through Syria, Egypt, Babylonia, and Persia, and thinks he's pretty much invincible. Yeah, he started wearing Persian royal clothes, and he likes the Persian custom of prostration, um, which is not okay with the Greeks and Macedonians. They think that's for a god only, not for their ruler. And he's literally gotten away with murder. He killed a trusted commander in a drunken brawl and uh, got away with it by having him charged with posthumous treason. So it's convenient. Yeah, Alexander <laughs> is really on a roll going into into this time, and he's only about 29 years old. And it's with this mindset that he ventures into the unknown, India. In the early summer of 327 BC, Alexander leaves Bactria, which today is uh, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan, with a reinforced army under a reorganized command. And he's heading to India, and he's cut down the army he led through Persia because India is a different climate and terrain, and his first order of business is to burn all the extra Persian booty that has been slowing them down. And the second is to dismiss a lot of his soldiers and add several thousand Persian cavalrymen, who it turns out Persian cavalrymen are really good when you're fighting elephants. 
So they recross the Hindu Kush, and by spring of 326, they've crossed the Indus River and entered Taxila, which is in the Punjab region. And Alexander and his troops are welcomed there. The ruler Taxiles even gives him elephants and troops, and decides to accompany him into battle. Yeah, but he he finds out that not all of the rulers in the Punjab region are going to be so friendly, and he gets wind that Porus, who is Taxila's enemy,、uh, is on the other side of the Hydaspes River. Preventing him from passing or fighting him if he does try to pass, and this is kind of a big deal because the Hydaspes runs really heavily in the late spring, which is this is around May at this point, and that's because all of the heavy rains from the monsoons and the melting snow from the mountains really fills it up. During the winter, it's Affordable in lots of places, but during the summer, you would have to. If you're being blocked at one of the places where you can get across, that's too bad. Okay, so there's going to be a fight at the river. It's going down, and they'll need to cross by boat. So Alexander sends some of his men back to the Indus to pick up their boats, disassemble them, carry them across land, and bring them back to the Hydaspes, where they can be reassembled, because that's the only way they can get across. Alexander's army encamps on the banks of the Hydaspes, and Porus lines his men and a large line of elephants up on the other side. So you have to picture these two armies on opposite sides of a bank, staring each other down. And think of some of Alexander's men—they've probably never seen elephants at all before, which I imagine would be somewhat intimidating. Yeah. So Porus is watching the passage, but he's also sending out guards to other spots on the river that could be forded. And Alexander is doing pretty much the same thing. Yeah. So Alexander has two main tactics right from the start, and one is to create a sense of permanency. He tries to make it obvious to Porus that they're in this for the long haul. They set up a very permanent-looking camp, and he's hoping Porus will just think that he's not going to fight him at all. He's going to wait there. Through all the summer, through all the fall, and finally cross in the winter when the river is low and Porus couldn't stop him. He even sends out reports about this,、um, and he's also trying to confuse Porus, sending his army in lots of different directions. And、um, they're getting a good sense for the land while they're doing this. But Alexander's real Motive here is to stage an ambush. He's not going to wait until the winter, and he knows that he can't cross directly towards Porus's army because the men would be assaulted coming out of the water. Porus's guys are right on the other side, and also with the elephants there, they might frighten Alexander's horses, so they would be—they wouldn't even get out of the water. They'd be f- afraid to climb the banks. So he's going to have to find a way to cross unopposed, which means it's going to have to be done in secret. So, what he does is pretty tricky. He trains Porus to ignore noises at night that sound like preparation for battle. So, his men start to lead the cavalry across the bank at various points. They make a lot of clatter. They're doing battle cries, and Porus at first. Thinks they're attempting a cross and follows them every single time. But after several nights of this, he realizes the noise doesn't mean anything and stops paying attention. And Alexander, by this point, has found a projecting point where the river makes a bend, and near it is a wooden island. And he realizes that this is his spot. This is where he's going to cross、um, because if he can get to the island under cover. He's almost to the other bank. It gives him a head start, and it gives him that secrecy, which is crucial to his ambush.
So he's going to be commanding a fast, light group of men who will lead the assault at the island crossing. And their advantage is going to have to be speed and surprise. But he leaves a large part of his army at his camp directly across from Porus. And he tells his main guy, his name is Craterus, not to cross the river before Porus moves off with his forces. The key point being there that he would take the elephants with him. So Craterus, don't cross the river until the elephants are gone, because otherwise those horses are not going to get off. Yeah, and this also prevents Porus's suspicions from being raised. That With the main part of Alexander's army directly across from him, he's not going to realize that a sneaky smaller group is is missing. Um Alexander also posts sentries along the bank, and they're noisy like every night. And he posts smaller groups between the main camp and the island, staggered, giving them instructions to cross in detachment so as his first island group goes, they can gradually follow. To accompany himself and some other forces, Alexander picks an elite bodyguard called the Companions, and he leads a secret march far away from the banks of the Hydaspes toward the island and the point, so Porus can't see what he's doing. And that night, there's a huge thunderstorm, so all the noise from the rain and the thunder drowns out the the noise of battle preparation, which Porus is actually used to anyways, but they're they're further protected by the noise. And Alexander's boats and oars are already there waiting for him at the point. They've been disassembled and brought ahead and hidden in the bush. So Alexander and his men make the cross. They go from the point to the island, and they're almost to the opposite bank before Porus's sentries see them and give word. But there's a little hitch in this plan, which is that Alexander has actually landed on a big island and not the mainland. So they have some fording to do, but they quickly overcome a small obstacle and make it to the mainland. All right, so we've got Alexander's light, fast army, and their whole goal being there is to surprise Porus, to draw him in, and then force him into retreat. But there's some action almost as soon as they ford the the smaller river. And as Porus's men arrive, Alexander engages them. A lot of Porus's men are on chariots, which don't operate very well in the mud from the rain the night before and, and just because they're on a river bank. And the son of Porus falls in this in this struggle. But some of the Indian horsemen escape from this little skirmish and tell Porus that Alexander has crossed the river himself with the strongest part of his army and also that his own son is dead. And Porus can't decide what to do because he's hearing this noise that Alexander and the strong part of his army are already here. Which is unexpected that Alexander would be with this smaller group. Right. And then he's looking at the larger group right across the river, led by Craterus on the other side. So where is he supposed to go? And Porus finally decides to march himself against Alexander. They'll go king to king. But he leaves a few elephants with a small army by the bank to frighten Craterus from coming over. From crossing, yeah. So Porus takes all his cavalry, all his chariots, 200 elephants, and 30,000 infantrymen. And he arranges his forces by lining the elephants up in front because hopefully no one is going to try to push through a line of elephants, right? But just in case they do, they're packed with infantrymen immediately behind them and then in small groups that can jut out between the spaces in the elephants so that if you were bold enough to try to sneak through two elephants, you're met with infantrymen shoulder to shoulder. 
And Alexander, in the meantime, decides to let his own infantry rest. And he also decides that he's not going to advance against the center of this scary line of elephants, because clearly that's just the strongest point and not the best way of going about it. So he takes his bigger cavalry and goes and marches against the left wing of Porus. And meanwhile, he sent his general, Cenus with the rest of the cavalry to march against Porus's right flank. And they create a sense of disorder among the Indian forces and shower them with arrows. And Cenus even manages to work his way behind Porus's men. And suddenly, Porus's cavalry is faced with two fronts, and they have to turn and face Alexander on one side and Cenus on the other. And while they're swiveling, you can just imagine what disorder it would be if suddenly you have, you're being attacked from two sides. But as they're swiveling, Alexander just plunges at them. And there is mass chaos as Alexander's phalanx attacks the elephants and the riders. So imagine this whole herd of elephants amid this shower of arrows just starting and to javelins. trample everyone. And javelins. Can't forget the javelins. Not just an Olympic event. No. So eventually the elephants get hedged in and cooped up, and they're trampling on everyone. Um, but the difference here, the Macedonians are in sort of a more open space, and they're able to dodge the elephants better. And a lot of the elephants by this point are riderless, and they're some of them are even injured themselves, and they're frightened, and they're out of control. But the Macedonians are better able to dodge them. And also, they're the ones who are trying to injure the elephants, while the Indians, obviously not trying to hurt their own elephants, are trying to shelter among them and get protection from them. They're really just getting tramped on. But eventually the elephants get tired, and again, many of them are injured, and they start to retreat, which is the point where Alexander signals his men to bunch together and advance. So, in the meantime, while all this is going on, we have Craterus back on the opposite bank of the main camp, and he sees Alexander is winning. It's time to advance. His men are fresh, and they enact much slaughter on Porus. 20,000 Indian infantrymen are killed, 3,000 cavalrymen, two sons of Porus die. All of the elephants are killed or captured. So we are talking a bloody battle here. Yeah. And Alexander's losses are fairly high. Some people put it around 1,000. 300 is the low, but that's fairly unlikely. Uh, That's a lot for a victor. Right. You would think that, especially with the element of surprise, that he would just be able to keep from losing many men. But that's not how it hand out. Yeah, the elephants actually do inflict a fair amount of damage. But so Porus is presiding over all this and he sees that it's over. He is lost, but he doesn't flee the battlefield. He keeps on fighting as long as there are other men on the field. And at last he's wounded in his right shoulder, which is the only part of his body that was left unprotected by his armor. And At that point, he turns his elephant around and begins to retire from the field. And Alexander has been so impressed by Porus at this point that he wants to save his life. So he sends Taxiles after him to give him a message. But Porus has been enemies with Taxiles for forever. So as Taxiles walks up, Porus is about to jab him with a javelin. So Taxiles (laughs) scoots away just in time. Just dodges it. And Alexander decides to send someone else, someone who's said he is an old friend of Porus. Actually friendly with Porus. And by this point, Porus uh, is dismounted from his elephant. He's taking a drink of water and he agrees, okay, take me to Alexander. 
So Alexander hears that Porus is on his way, and he goes to the front line with the companions. Alexander is admiring of Porus, and not just because of his bravery, but because of his physical presence. He's described as being five cubits tall, and there's some discrepancy on that. If you go by certain measurements of what a cubit is, that's like more than seven feet tall. So it's <laughs> unlikely, I think. Um, but another measurement puts it more at about six feet, which is still quite tall compared to the diminutive Alexander. Which I didn't know until you told me, actually. Yeah. But Alexander is surprised by how brave Porus looks in the face of defeat because not all of his conquests have gone this way. Some rulers no. have simply turned around and fled, like Darius, Darius the Third. Pretty bad reputation for that. So Alexander asks Porus what kind of treatment he would like to receive. And Porus says, treat me, O Alexander, like a king. And Alexander responds, for my own sake, thou shalt be thus treated. But for thy own sake, do thou demand what is pleasing to thee. And And Porus says back, everything is included in that request. And we talked a little bit about what that might mean. And we were thinking it's um, everything that Porus would want, whether that is power or respect or money, is all wrapped up in this idea of kingship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Alexander really likes this response, so much so that he gives Porus rule over his own people um, as a as a supporter of Alexander, obviously, um, and even gives him more territory to rule, other conquered territories. So after the battle, Porus holds the position of a ruler, but he's subordinate to Alexander, and he's assassinated after Alexander's death by Eudemus, one of Alexander's generals. So we're going to catch up to you with what Alexander does immediately after this great battle of the Hydaspes. He founds two cities there. One is Alexandria Nicaea, which means victory, and the other was Bucephala, which was named for his horse, Bucephalus, who died there. And um, this horse was very dear to Alexander. He had ridden on it in all his battles and um, was very devoted, put out a ransom for it once when it was stolen, and um, it finally falls at the Battle of Hydaspes. After this battle, Alexander is very anxious to press on, but his army mutinies. They're tired of dealing with the tropical rain. They're extremely tired. The battle was really hard, and they are adamant about going home. And Alexander says, okay, we'll go back. But not before we erect 12 altars to the 12 Olympians and also build a fleet of 800 to 1,000 ships, which I don't think I, as a member of a mutinying army, would take no. as a condition. Yeah, but on the other hand, you probably do want to stick with Alexander. He'll you get definitely you want to be on his side. <laughs> so they leave Porus and they proceed down the river into the Indus. And it's a really, this is a hard trip home. You would... Maybe expect that they'd go back the way they came, where they had already conquered everything. (laughs) You would be wrong. um, It's a tough march, and they kill a lot of people. They have a lot of skirmishes. Alexander is seriously hurt. And even during the trip, they take a few breaks, though. Alexander seeks out Indian philosophers and debates them on philosophical matters, which sounds like a bizarre story until you consider that Alexander's tutor was Aristotle. So maybe not that strange after all. 
And they had to deal with their own disasters on the way out of India. They were still dealing with monsoons and hiking through the deserts. Again, it was really tough. But they reached the mouth of the Indus in July 325 and turned westward for home. So why is the story of a defeat, however honorable and noble it is, such an important part of this history? One reason is Alexander has gone up against a lot of rulers who didn't behave so honorably, who were, you know, understandably frightened of Alexander. So Porus's record there really stands out. But another is that it is such a turning point for Alexander and for his campaign of conquest uh, across not only Asia, but his entire campaign. It's the point where they decide to go back. And a lot of that does have to do with, as you mentioned earlier, the tropical rain. And the men are just tired by this point, and they want to go home. But Porus and his army have given them a good fight. It hasn't been easy winning the Battle of the Hydaspes. And they they don't want any more of that. They're ready to stop fighting, even though they have these skirmishes on the Indus, and go back to Macedonia. Alexander himself doesn't live long past this battle, and historians have long wondered what would have happened if he hadn't died at such a young age and how much further he would have gone. So I think that about wraps it up for Alexander the Great and King Porus, or Raja Pururava. Um, but on to listener mail. <laughs> In our podcast on the birth of Frankenstein, Sarah and I had made a joke about vermicelli and oh, isn't that a noodle? But a lot of people didn't seem to understand that that was a joke. So I promise we know that Mary Shelley wasn't just talking about pasta noodles coming to life. We got one email from Anita in Fort Myers, who was talking a little bit more about those experiments with spontaneous generation and saying that, You know, scientists would try to, say, put a piece of meat under the glass, looking to see if the meat would generate more of itself. But because they didn't understand things about, say, hand washing, they would touch the food with their dirty hands and maybe transfer fly larvae to it, and then maggots would come, and then they'd say, hey, look, spontaneous generation. So thank you for that, Anita, insight into science in the old days. And we got another email from David of Fresno, who said that, first of all, he lived for our podcasts, um, which we did enjoy. We entertained him on the treadmill, apparently. And he also talked a little bit more about those experiments, talking about the work of Luigi Galvani and Volta. Galvani, for example, had quote-unquote animated a dead frog's legs with an electric jolt, which led some people to think that electricity was, in fact, the force of life that gives us all life. Well, if you have something to share with us about King Porus, Alexander, or any of the podcasts, you can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the howstuffworks.com homepage. (laughs) 